of one another. And so we are especially excited to jump back in the word of God as we've been working through First Samuel. We are all the way down now, if you can believe it. We're all the way down to First Samuel chapter 18. And um, I think we are going through this a little bit faster than we went through uh, the book of Acts. But we are grateful to the Lord to be able to work through this again. And so um, as we're talking about the love that God has for us and extending that love to each other, um, we are talking about a particularly interesting text today. And if you allow me to be vulnerable just before we even begin, um, the sermon is not coming from me in an area of particular strength, but it is actually coming from one of those areas in which I am myself still growing. And so the title of today's sermon is Friends. And we are going to be looking today at the relationship between David and Jonathan and see the ways that God bonded them together in this friendship that was both God honoring to one another, but it was also honoring to God as well. Last week, we see in David this fearless, um, almost what some would say masculine version of him who is fighting a large man and talking about being able to fight bears and lions and all these other things, grabbing lions by the mane and taking sheep from them. And he seems like a very masculine, tough kind of man, and he takes down Goliath. But this week, we're seeing a different version of who David is, and initially, it's probably going to challenge us. It may even challenge who we thought David has been, but that won't be a bad thing. And so let's jump into it very quickly today. We're going to 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's King James, but it'll do. Uh, We're in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. We're going to start in the very first verse. And so it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on on him and gave it to David and his armor and even the sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever wherever Saul sent him so that he set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for the word of God. We thank you that um, as we work verse by verse, text by text, God, that there are so many different things that you open up in our eyes. We don't have to preach topics, but the scriptures contain everything that we need to know. So God, we just pray that as we work through this text today, that not only you will show us what godly friendships look like, but you will also open our eyes to understand what that means in terms of the gospel and how you've loved us. So help us as we work through this section today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when we first read this text, I don't know about you, but for me, there is a little discomfort in this text. Because not only are we, as a people, often disconnected from one another spiritually and emotionally, but we are not typically super comfortable with expressing ourselves in a way that is real, that is raw, and the word I hate the most, that is vulnerable. And so when we see David here and Jonathan expressing themselves in this way, we tend to probably think that there is something sordid about their relationship. 
there's something unnatural and probably unhealthy when we look at this type of affection between two men. Not only that, but in our world, there is this constant interjecting of what we believe today into what we know about yesterday. And that just doesn't work when you're reading the Bible. You can't read the Bible in today's lens and read it as if it was written today. The writer here describes David and Jonathan as being knit together in the soul. Now, in a world where we're always talking about finding your soulmate, I think David and Jonathan actually give a little bit of a new meaning to that term. Here they are, two friends who have found their souls to be knit and conjoined with one another. In 2 Samuel, it even says that Jonathan's love for David surpassed that of a woman. Now, there are lots of modern day theologians who have wrestled with this text because they don't quite understand what this means. They don't understand the nature of this relationship. And so what they do is they turn this relationship into something that is unnatural. Because we can't reason that two men could affectionately love one another in this way. But the language here in the text doesn't indicate that there was anything unnatural about this relationship at all. So why are people feeling obligated to change the meaning of this text? Why do they feel obligated to change the interpretation of it? Well, I think it's because in our culture, there has been an increasing effort to emasculate the man. I think that's just what we see in our world. See, what I mean by that is not something simple like gender roles in the house. Who washes the dishes is not a feminine or masculine role at all. But it's deeper than that. As we have seen evil in our world increase, one of the places that has been hyperanalyzed is in sexual relationships. Now, it's between men and women, but the emphasis is also between same-sex relationships. The forcefulness, the forcefulness by which certain groups declare one's gender assignment is an attack against God's created order. Because of this, the deepest and most meaningful relationship they believe one can have is only sexual. And so anything that isn't sexual then becomes devalued. What is described here between David and Jonathan should not be unique in the life of the Christian, and we shouldn't even bat an eye at it, but unfortunately, it is unique for many of us. For some reason, many Christians are lacking in deeply meaningful relationships. But see, that's actually the opposite of what we've been called to do. Many of us have treated the church as just the place that we go on Sundays and we sit in pews with other people. But what we've been called to do is develop deep and meaningful relationships, soul tying relationships with one another. But unfortunately, I think this is the truth as well. What many women have found beautifully fulfilling in the church, finding relationships, finding partnerships, finding co-laborers in the gospel, many men have run away from. Soul-stirring, life-enhancing friendships. Now the men will become preachers, will help lead churches, but we often shy away from anything that allows us to get to know one another intimately. And simply, we haven't been taught to value these relationships at all. 
And so we have to find some perverse reason that Jonathan and David would have loved each other, the one that they did. But the fact is that they're just friends. That's it. Now, we even see this with Jesus and his disciples. But with John, he constantly is described as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, I've heard people try to explain it away, but it meant that while Jesus loved all the others, he had a special affection for John. And for some reason, we don't know what to do with that. Because I think this is not cultivated, nor is it encouraged in our world. There was a theologian, a professor who had actually won professor of the year and who could only describe David and Jonathan's relationship as erotic. And if I would be honest, being very candid myself, I think I always feel just a little uncomfortable when anyone says that they love me that's not my family. But I think it's especially true even when that person is a male. Now, some of you will probably remember my best friend, Josh Evans. He preached here a while ago. If you remember, he preached an amazing message called Warning Your One. And if you know Josh, if you saw Josh, Josh is a big, burly guy. He's as man's man. He's as masculine as they come. He's married. He's got some beautiful children. And I remember before the tornado hit our old church, him sitting in the office across from me. And he was like, I love you, man. I was like, OK, all right. I didn't know how to respond. He was like, no, I really do. He's like, I just feel drawn to you. I was like, where in the world is this going? But then I realized that there is something uncomfortable in me hearing another male say, I love you. Not because there is something wrong with the love, but it's because something was broken in me. I think that's the same thing when we look back at scripture and can't rationalize how David and Jonathan could naturally love one another. And so we have to turn it into something that is not. There is nothing wrong with the love they have for each other. There's something wrong with us if we can't rationalize what that is. The author here says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Now, the breakdown in understanding this text is that people have connected this Old Testament text to Paul's New Testament text telling husbands to love their wives. And they see that this is the same love, but it's not. In fact, we actually do see this same language in the Old Testament elsewhere in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6. It says, if your brother, the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife uh, you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul. It describes here that there are people that you can love as your own soul. I remember Christy and I were watching a movie called Inventing Anna, and it's about how this girl goes awry, and they, they try to pinpoint what happened to her. And finally, the lady that's been investigating it gets to her parents, and she asks her mother what happened to her. Did something happen to her? She says, no. From the time she was born, she was a stranger in my house. But then she makes a comment about the son. She said, but then there are children like my son whose soul is my soul. When we love, we don't have the luxury of loving on a surface level. What God has called us to do is love beyond ourselves. 
And if anyone should understand the powerful nature of this love, it should be those of us who are believers. The call of Christianity is not just a casual love that is unaffectionate or distant, but it is one that answers the charge that made that was made to us by Christ when he said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I think that confirms that this is the normal way we should be loving one another. We should look at our brothers and sisters not only as our co-laborers, but those who we are joined together with in this unique and unbreakable bond that we may never have with anyone else. So why do we not often feel so inclined to love in this way? Well, I want you to think about this. If you've ever had any conversations with older men, and you ask them about other men that they're really close to, they typically come from two places in their life. They either come from their jobs or they come from their service in the military. Now, the main reason they say that the military is where they made most of their close friends is that because they had been to war with them. They had been in the trenches with them. They had faced uh, an enemy together that was common to them. They've been in the trenches together, and when your life is dependent on the person next to you, they will either become your brother or you will die. Brothers and sisters, I think that the reason why we are not building soul-united relationships with one another is because we don't realize that we are at war. (laughs) We are at war. We are in the proverbial trenches and there is a real enemy that we all need to be fighting against. And this is perhaps Satan's greatest deception. He makes us not think that we are in a war. Therefore, we see no need for the other brothers in the trenches. But we are reminded from Scripture in 1 Peter 5 and 8 that we ought to be sober minded, that we ought to be watchful. And then he tells us that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Y'all, there is a real common enemy. And the people that we fellowship with in the church are not just our brothers and sisters, but they are the people at war against his enemy with us. They are soldiers next to us on the battleground. There is an active enemy at work against us. I remember Augustine's Confessions, which is essentially his autobiography, and he described when his best friend passed away that he felt like his soul had been poured out on the dust in grief because this man had died. And I remember thinking, like, what in the world? And reading back, like, was something else going on between them? How could he feel such depth and love for just a brother? Because that man had become more than a brother to him. He was closer than a brother. He was a partner in the war that Satan wages against us. He'd been on the battlefield with him. C.S. Lewis helps clarify this. He says, you will not find the warrior, the poet, the philosopher, or the Christian by staring into his eyes as if he were your mistress. 
Better to fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, pray with him. This is the charge. But then I want you to see what happened next here. It says, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. And he gave it to David and his armor and even the sword and his bow and his belt. Now, let's remember something that happened last week. David is getting ready to fight Goliath. The only armor that's available is Saul's armor. And so he tells David here, I have some armor for you and you need to wear this in order to go fight Goliath. And you remember there's this poignant moment where he's like, I ain't proved this. I don't know how to use this. It's too big for me. I ain't put your armor on, Saul. I got to go out there with what I have. And he goes and he fights and he defeats Goliath. But here we actually see something different. As opposed to him rejecting the armor, he actually accepts that Jonathan is clothing him with his armor, with his sword, and with his robe. Now, we got to think about something here, because these things just happen a few, like a chapter apart. Why does he, in one hand, reject Saul's armor, but on this hand, he takes the son of Saul's armor? Well, let's think about why Jonathan did this in the first place. Jonathan, by giving up his armor, he was symbolically saying that he was giving up his rightful position to the throne of his father. If something had happened to Saul, Jonathan, the son, would have inherited the throne. But what he's actually doing is saying, no, I'm laying down my right to the throne and I'm giving it to you, David. And the symbol of that is I'm going to place my armor, my robe, my bow, my belt. I'm placing it on you symbolically saying that I have laid down my right to the throne. In other words, Jonathan was laying down the life that was set before him so David could have it. Now, all right, Jonathan, I get being friends, but this is crazy. You have an opportunity at royalty here, and you're going to lay that life down for your friend? But I want you to look at this here. Who in their right mind would take their glory and clothe somebody else with it? Let's look at John 15, 13, if you're trying to figure out who would clothe somebody else with their glory. John 15, 13 Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Look at what Jesus says here. He says that the greatest demonstration of love that one has is that they would lay down their life for someone else. 
Now, it may not seem like it, but essentially, Jonathan did lay his life down for his friend. Jesus laid down his life for us, who are also now his friends. Friendships for Christians are not just for our gain, but they are also for us to give ourselves away. Our friendships then are such a beautiful picture of the gospel and what Jesus has also done for us. Now, we may think it's weird to see men express such love and devotion to one another. But if that is the case, how odd is it that Christ would love us while we were yet his enemies? If you can't understand two men loving each other this way, then I also can't understand how Christ could love me the way that he has. Because I don't know about you, but I'm the worst person that has ever lived yet. While I was yet sinning against God, Jesus died for me. What kind of love is that? (laughs) That is a self-sacrificing love that we are not able to rationalize on our own. Ultimately, when we misunderstand what Christ's love is and means for us, we will not understand how we have been called to love one another. Your understanding of the gospel is made clear through your love. What does scripture tell us? John 13 and 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? How would they know it if you have love for one another? Listen, this is a challenge. We call ourselves Christians, but the demonstration of our love is that we love one another. And people will know, oh, yeah, you must be a follower of Christ because you don't love yourself the way you love others. You give of yourself. You esteem others. You support others. You are there. You are laying down your life. You are self-sacrificing. What's the other primary example we see this in, though, for the believer? It's not just in our friendships. It's also in our marriages. What is the charge for husbands? Love your wives as Christ has loved his church and did what? He gave himself up for it. If unbelievers, if nothing else, they can't be convinced of your love for Christ by how you love, then you are doing something wrong. When we read this, we know that this is not a normal love, y'all. Listen, everybody loves somebody. But Christians love differently than the rest of the world. We love in that self-sacrificing way that esteems and uplifts others more than ourselves. By this love, they will know that we are followers of Christ. So I want you to ask yourself this. If people were judging your faith just based on how you self-sacrificially love others, what would they think about you? What would they think about your Christian conviction? What would they say about your walk with Christ? Would it seem as authentic? We are now friends with the Savior who has permanently knit himself with us. 
In the beauty of his laying down his life, we have now been given this new friendship with Christ. Go to Proverbs 18 and 24. There's one final point that is made to us that I think is really important for us to grasp here in this text. Proverbs 18, 24. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So I want to give you one final word here on this. I intentionally skipped this, but it isn't anything to glance over. I want you to notice that it said that Jonathan made a covenant with David. He made a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? It's a promise. And it's an agreed upon matter where the individuals decide on something. And these types of covenants were typically sealed with blood And the punishment for breaking the covenant was death. Friendships as Christians should be some of the first covenants that we not only make, but that we also keep. Submission to these friends provides both protection and guidance, while they will also hold us accountable for any wrongdoing. Why is it important that we learn to love and submit and give of ourselves with our friendships first. Because in our lives, we are essentially making covenant after covenant. You will make a covenant with your job that if you do what you're supposed to do, that they're going to pay you. That's a covenant. You will submit to their rule. One day, hopefully, you're going to want to make a covenant for life with someone And that habit of submission that you've had, those covenants that you've made will have great meaning in the life of your marriage. Because submission at that point should be normal for you. That's why it never surprises me when marriages struggle and when people can't effectively live and submit to one another. Because in a world of cutting people off, we need covenants. That's what we get from God. When he saves us, he made a covenant with us. But for us, the blood that Jesus shed has sealed us with him for all of eternity. Yes, this sermon is about friendships. But it's even more about how well we've been loved, how perfectly we've been loved by Christ. If we have been loved by Christ, then that same love should exude out of us. There should be no mistake. If you are a believer, if you have been loved, if something has been given up for you, then what are you giving up in return? I was having a conversation this past week with um, a co-worker of mine, so my best conversations happen because we're all professing Christians, and she asked me, this is probably her fifth time asking me this, but when is enough enough? Like, when do you have to worry about yourself? Like, when does it go beyond just you're loving this person and you're taking all this mental abuse? I said, well, if I'm being honest, 
I've probably drawn a line in the sand many times with people and said, you know what? If they cross this line, I'm done. I have poured out myself enough. I've given of myself enough. I can't take the abuse anymore. I'm done. But then I said, every time I draw that line in the sand, my eyes gaze back up at the cross. And I realized that every time I should have thought, well, this is enough, that's enough abuse. Jesus never made that claim. Jesus never said enough is enough. I'm done. These people don't deserve it. Nope. He died on the cross anyway. And if that is for me the measuring stick of how well I need to love somebody, if it will draw them to him, then there is no limit, y'all. There is no line in the sand that we say we won't cross. Because Jesus crossed every one of them. And if we have been loved by him, then we should love each other. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word, God. We thank you that something as simple as a friendship between these two men is such a picture of the gospel. It is such a picture of how we have been loved, how you have saved us so perfectly how you have redeemed us, how you were willing to lay down your life so that we might have eternal life. God, in the same way that Jonathan laid down his life and he laid down his glory and he laid down his right to the throne, God, we pray that you would give us the same wherewithal to lay down our lives for one another. Lord, whether that's in friendships, whether that is in brother and sisterhoods, whether that's with our parents, with our children, with our spouses. You have called us to love in a way that is foreign to the world. But you are also telling us that by loving in this way, people will look at the way that we love and they will see you. And they will know that we are followers of Christ because of the way that we love. And so, God, as we go forward in the rest of this week and our lives, when we want to draw those proverbial lines in the sand and say, this is it, this is enough, I can't take any more, they'll never get it, let our eyes again gaze to the cross and be reminded that you didn't draw that line and that you went through everything possible to draw us to you and that we as well, must do the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.